Father, it would be the desire of our hearts that through the power of the Holy Spirit, that that would be our testimony today. That Jesus, our great Lord and Savior, the one who conquered the grave, provides such a great salvation through his substitutionary death on the cross, that he would be worth more to us than precious jewels, than houses and lands, than prestige or position. That Jesus Christ would be our all in all and that knowing him would be our great mission. Father, thank you for our Bibles. Thank you for the opportunity to study together. We admit that we need discernment for living in this day. The issues and the current events around us are such that we want as your church and as your people to let our light shine brightly, that the love of Christ would be seen in us. And so use our study time now this morning as in our hearts and in our minds together corporately we would acknowledge before you that we want our quiet listening and pondering of the word to be a continuation of our worship this morning as we sit in humility before the word and that we would go from here strengthened and encouraged and able to meet the demands of the week. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And for the last time this summer, I say to you, please turn with me to that little Old Testament book of Jonah. Um, We have enjoyed a summer series. And like last week, as we turn in our Bibles to Jonah, we want to just use this as a foundation for our thinking as to why we are where we are today. We studied this book, we've benefited from it, and we recognized as we concluded in chapter 4 that Jonah, this man of God, had an incredible problem with anger. We dealt with that last week. I trust it was helpful and challenging to us. This morning, there's one other topic that surfaces out of this book. It's it's a strange little book, and it, and it just kind of cuts off. It's over, and it's done, and, and there we are, left with the speculation of what Jonah's mind and attitude and heart must have been. You'll recall that Jonah had been regurgitated out of the fish, redirected by the Lord into a willing servant from an obstinate, stubborn, uh, runaway servant, and he ends up in Nineveh. He does preach the word. Nineveh repents. And in chapter 4, Jonah is sitting east of the city. He's waiting to see what God is going to do. He is hoping beyond hope that somehow God would indeed follow through with his original intent of wiping these Assyrians off the face of the earth. Jonah recognizes that by the grace and mercy of God that he even seeks Gentiles of all people, Assyrians, Ninevites, the worst sinners of all. And it really, really makes him angry. He is beside himself in anger. And we recognize as the book comes to an end that that anger is actually foundationed upon the reality that this man of God with anger issues also has an incredible issue with racism. I mean, let me show you what I mean. We're in Jonah chapter 4. Let's pick it up, say, with verse 8. And Jonah has been there in the scorching heat. The dry desert wind is blowing upon him. 
And it says in verse 8, when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. And he said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you well, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah, very ticked off says, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor. See, a plant had grown up overnight to provide shade. And then God had brought a worm along to nip the stem of the plant. And in the dry wind and in the sun, it immediately shriveled up. And Jonah is miserable once again. And And the Lord said, verse 10, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and it perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city? It's a lesser to greater argument. If you care about this plant, can't I care about something much greater? And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and much cattle? Boom, the book is over. And you walk away from the book and you, you don't have resolution. And you, you have this upset feeling, recognize the man of God was really unjustly, unrighteously angry. He sinned in his anger to the degree that he wanted to die. And then it dawns on you, the reason he was so angry is because there was an identifiable group of people that he hated more than life itself. He hated the Assyrians so much that he wanted more than anything else for God to wipe them off the face of the earth. And in fact, verse 2 of chapter 4 tells us the very reason he ran away is that he was trying to interrupt the channel of the message, the conduit of the message. He was the vehicle and he was trying to run away so that they wouldn't ear, have ears to hear the message because there would be no mouth to speak the message. And he burns with anger. And he's livid with, with actual racist hatred. And so we kind of have a Jonah reboot here where we have a couple weeks where we've just got to deal with this because we recognize if the man of God can act like that, what about me? And we know our hearts. We know the things that we've dealt with. Now, I don't need to illustrate on the screen for you the current events and the daily happenings of the news recognizing that racism is systemic in our own culture. I was, I was reading and researching a little bit for my message this week, and I was reading, by the way, I'll just recommend the book. It's, it, you'll see a chart from it on the back of your notes. It's a biblical answer to racism, One Race, One Blood, by Ken Ham and a pastor out in the Midwest, a black pastor, a, a great Christian leader. He's part of our IFCA, actually, um, A. Charles Ware, president of a Bible college near Indianapolis, Crossroads Bible College. They write in this easy-to-read handling of this sensitive and important topic, one race, one blood. In one of the chapters, Ken Ham is pointing out, listen to this, Ken Ham is pointing out, he said, "When when you examine humans, people, from a biological, physiological direction, 
No matter who they are, no matter what part of the world they're from, no matter what color they are, no matter what shape their eyes, lips, skull, body, no matter what geographic region they've grown up in, there is only a 0.2% difference in all people. And those differences are significantly superficial. And in fact, in, in, in DNA and in the, under the microscope, the difference between all races everywhere comes out to be something like 0.012 difference that you can find in chromosomes and in difference of people. In other words, the differences in all people, we are so much alike, except for just a, a little bit of external color and covering and shape and design, kind of like the auto industry. But isn't it interesting that with, with significantly less than half of a percent difference between all of us around the world who've ever lived as human beings, that we experience these incredibly ignorant moments where people, based upon shape or color or ethnic origin, will spit and be angry, and even do violence. I've told this story many times through the years. It illustrates just the idiocy of the reality of racism in our hearts. I worked my way through Bible college up on the Yukon River in a village called Imanic, Alaska. It's a muddy little village. There was no concrete, and so we, they had built treated lumber decks, and on those decks we set up basketball courts, and in the Arctic, in the summertime, it doesn't get dark at night and so we would play ball from 10 o'clock at night till 2 in the morning or something and and I was the only white guy and I was the gussock a derogatory Eskimo term for white guy I'd grown up in the south side of Chicago so I didn't let that stuff bother me plus I was the only guy who had a basketball so they wanted me to be there <laughs> and we're setting up our teams we're choosing up teams and we want to play a little ball here we want to we want to have a good time with these young men, and they were in their early 20s. And we were one guy short to match up our teams. And I saw a guy down the road, a muddy trail, and I said, hey, well, how about him? And I named him. I knew him. We'll call him over, and the guys all said, no, no. Why not? Oh, they said, he got those slanty eyes. Oh, oh yeah, we don't want him on our basketball court. See, he was Aleut, they were Eskimo. Didn't have anything to do with black-white. Racism is, is such a sinful, wrong thing, and it's been around as long as the human race. In fact, um, this topic is a huge topic. It's not easy to know exactly how to deal with it. And as I've pondered it and studied it, I just felt it would be good for me and good for our church that we would analyze what it is that would resolve racism. How is it that we can be sure that we are not in any way a racist church, a racist people as God's people? And so I have uh, somewhat randomly on my own, out of my head, selected four things that occurs to me that if we deal with these things, we would have a biblical understanding of how to resolve racism. In fact, clarity and unity will only be attained as we embrace a biblical understanding of these four things. Apart from a biblical understanding of these four things that we're going to look at today, the door is wide open for racism. Now let me ask you a question. Do we 
Do we have any basis on which to expect that the world around us will embrace biblical thinking? We do not. So at the least, we need a church that thinks biblically so that we can live out our Lord's instruction that they will know us by our love. And one thing we know for sure is that at least God's people ought to be thinking biblically about these things and respond accordingly. Let's dig in. Point number one in our notes is we must think biblically, number one, about the origins of the human race. We must think biblically about the origins of the human race. And so let's quickly turn back to Genesis. We're going to turn in our Bibles just a little bit this morning. I hope you don't mind that. I rather enjoy it. And it's good for you to make sure that you're turning in your Bibles or speaking into your phone or something, however you can get it up. The origins of the human race. The first thing I want you to see as to why we must think biblically about this is because, letter A, biblical creationism establishes human equality. Biblical creationism establishes the level playing field for equality among all people everywhere. Let's look and see the account of creation. And let's look at verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1. And then God said, let us make man, let us, okay, a veiled reference to the Trinity, no doubt. Let us make man in our image, see the plurality of the Godhead, in our image after our likeness. So one thing we know, after he chronicles all of the account of the creation of plants and animals and birds and every living thing, he is doing something significantly different here now, and he's going to create man in his own image. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so he makes man distinct above all other life forms. And so it says in verse 27, so God created man, humankind, in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them and he blessed them. And he commanded them to multiply and fill the earth. And so the first thing we see is that all people everywhere are created in the image of God. We ought to be able to shut our Bibles right now and go home and have all the fuel we need to know why there's no place for racism in our hearts and minds and in our church. Because we were all created in the image of God, all people everywhere. But let's flip over, and since we're here, we might as well stay another 30 minutes. Um, And let's go to Genesis chapter 9. Let's go to Genesis chapter 9. Furthermore, a couple of you wouldn't leave without filling in the blanks, so that'll take about the next, uh, well, hopefully not 30 minutes. In Genesis chapter 9, take a look at verses 1 through 6, and we need to skip through this, but what you recognize here is that God, uh, though the earth has populated probably somewhere between 6 and 10 million people, maybe more, maybe way more even before the flood. We don't even know. We know the birth rate had to be exponential with the lifespan. We're going to talk about that Friday night, by the way. We're going to be in the genealogy of Genesis chapter 5 and talk about a father named Enoch. He'll challenge your heart. Saturday night, excuse me if I said Friday. Saturday night. Let's just read chapter 9, verse 1 through 6. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. See, they're back down to one family. God had wiped out the whole earth in Genesis chapter 6 with the flood because of their wickedness. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And look at this. This is a good thing. 
The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are to be delivered. This is good for two reasons. Number one, it's because when you take your wife for a walk at T.A. Lowry on the trek, squirrels and crows and possum and groundhogs don't come out and attack you. Because if they did, you wouldn't go walking in the evening. I'm telling you one groundhog would put the fear of God in you if he was after your ankles bad. All right? But the fear of man is in them. So it's a good thing. So we live down. Notice the fear of other humans is not supposed to be in people. The fear of animals. Second thing that this is a good reason is because we really like Burger King Whoppers and we can eat cattle ground up into meat. And it's a good thing. And we don't eat humans ground up into meat. Because why? Because people are created in the image of God. There is a sanctity of human life seen in biblical creationism. And I want you to see that sanctity. God goes on and notice that this is long before Mosaic law is established. Every moving thing, verse three again, that moves, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And I gave, as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything, but you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is its blood. So we, when we butcher, we drain the blood and for your lifeblood, I will require, this is of other humans for your lifeblood, human lifeblood. I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it. So if a, if a bear or a lion kills a human, you're supposed to kill the bear or the lion. I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of a man. Verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Right there is the foundational reality of the sanctity of human life. And that's all people everywhere who've ever lived. It is a universal concept to be observed by all people everywhere. We turn quickly to Acts chapter 17 and look at verse 26 and you can flip your notes and notice in your notes that um, there is a chart that is taken from the book I referenced, One Race, One Blood, that Ken Ham used there uh, from his answers in Genesis ministry. Their website is very helpful, by the way, for many things. And for you young people who are dealing with the topic of evolution, for example, or origins or anywhere, what happened to dinosaurs, uh, where did Adam and Eve and their children, where did, where did Cain and Abel get their wives or whatever, all that's there. It's very helpful. In Acts chapter 17, look at verse 26. This is the apostle Paul. He's at Mars Hill in Athens, Greece. It is known for their philosophers, for their false religions. They were largely followers of Zeus and other mythological gods. In fact, at Mars Hill, they would sit around, guys with PhDs would sit around and drink beer, smoke cigars, and talk about how smart they were and ponder theology and philosophy. And Paul walks up on them, and there's a blank monument there that is to the unknown God. And Paul says, you want to know who the unknown God is? I'll tell you who he is. And he starts from the beginning, and he talks to him about creation. And he talks to him about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in his explanation of them in verse 26, he says, And he, God, Paul talking to these philosophers, and he made from one man, Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, so forth. You see, if you look at the chart, it's pretty apparent. Adam and Eve propagated and had children, then the, they had sons and daughters. We won't look these verses up. And then the earth 
is so sinful and horrible that God wipes it off the face of the earth except for one man and his family, Noah and his sons. They begin under the instruction that we just read in chapter 9, verse 1, to repopulate the earth. And it's been being repopulated ever since Noah, so we are all related in Noah. It had to go through the narrow neck of the hourglass to get back out big again. And then you have the Tower of Babel, and there God confuses the languages which drove people to different parts of the world, which the theory is, it, the best we can think, is that, that then genetic identity through groups of people isolated by language, they could only understand their own language, ended up moving and populating certain parts of the earth, which created then gene pools, which then defined races. All equal, all sacred in the eyes of God, all all a level playing field because of creation. Let's very quickly remind ourselves then of the problems that we're going to run into if we hold to any kind of naturalistic worldview where there is no God, where there is no creation. Secondly, you need to see that the evolutionary model allows for racism. The evolutionary model absolutely allows for racism. And let me explain this to you, because some of you are getting your defenses up already because you're an evolutionist. You say, well, I went to Shepherd University in their science department, and I had a Ph.D. from Oxford teach me. I don't care where your Ph.D. was from. This is reality. You listen closely to me, because it does not hold up under scrutiny. And, the, and when Charles Darwin wrote The Origin of Species and, and the evolutionary model took root... All hell broke loose. It was a doctrine of demons. Here it is. First of all, you need to recognize that the evolutionary, evolutionary-based racism is logical. Charles Darwin, by the way, was an incredible racist. Number one, evolution creates an evolutionary-based racism, and it's a logical sequence of thought. What do we mean by that? If you believe in evolution, here's what you believe. You believe that given enough time, anything can happen for greater development. If you just leave something alone long enough, it can turn into anything. Incredibly complex. For example, if, if a Amoeba can turn into a fish, and then a fish turns into an amphibian, and an amphibian turns into some kind of reptile, and maybe they're the same, I don't know. Um, I get paid for words in preaching the Bible, but fish and amphibians and reptiles, and then it turns into a bird, and then a bird turns into a monkey, and then a monkey turns into a man. You see, that's all possible if you just wait long enough. And in fact, it's actually happening before our very eyes right now, they would teach. It's just so slow, you can't see it. You see, I, I don't, you got to have a lot of PhDs to believe because by leaving something alone for a long period of time, how does that enable it to actually change its genetic code? It's impossible. So here, listen closely. Here's the logic. Let, let me just read what I wrote. Once it is accepted that species, when given enough time, can completely change form genetically, it is only logical then that a superior and more advanced race will exist. You see, we're working right now, we are just, according to the evolutionists, the most advanced form of animal. We are at the top of the food chain. So it is logical once you create inferior species. Who gets to decide, by the way? 
You do. If there is no God, if there is no law, if there is no moral standard or code of ethics, who gets to decide? The crowd? And that's exactly what happens. Secondly, evolutionary-based racism is actually unavoidable. And in fact, a true evolutionist would not want to stop it because you would then be interrupting the very progress of the development of species if you believe in evolution. Let me read what I wrote. The fundamental evolutionary concept of survival of the fittest opens the door to racism. The evolutionary advancement of a species makes no allowance for the strong to protect the weak. Do you understand what I'm saying? In other words, for evolution to work, what has to happen? The strong needs to survive and the weak needs to be done away with. Once you identify a superior race or a strength, a strength in a certain category of living creatures, they then have permission to destroy anything that they choose to destroy. It is a doing away of the weak. And in fact, in the evolutionary model, there is no provision because it would take a moral code. There is no moral code in evolution. And in fact... There is no provision for the strong to protect the weak in the evolutionary model. The evolutionary model doesn't work if the strong does not destroy the weak. And that's exactly what Hitler believed, based upon Charles Darwin. Thirdly, secondly, our main point, okay, so we are arguing. Let's remind ourselves what we're doing here, because I get a little fired up about evolution. (laughs) Young people, listen to me. I don't care who laughs at you. I don't care who mocks you. And I don't care who flunks you out of your class. Do not yield one inch. You are right and they are wrong when it comes to creationism. It doesn't make sense that something can come from nothing without an outside force. Just stick with your simple arguments. You're not stupid if you believe that. You've got to have lots of education to figure out how something can come from nothing without an outside force by waiting long enough. Don't be embarrassed of your Bibles ever. Don't be embarrassed of your Bibles. Even if you can't explain everything, don't be embarrassed. So we're arguing that we have to have a biblical mindset on these four things. The first one is we have to have a biblical mindset on the origin of the human race or we will not resolve the racist issue. Secondly, we need to understand the sinful bent of the human heart. The sinful bent of the human heart. Listen, if you don't get anything out of this morning other than this, get this straight. Racism is a sin problem. Racism is a sin problem. I'm I'm tempted right now to comment on theistic evolution, but I don't have time. It's utter nonsense. Number two, back to the notes. PV, get his brain in the sermon here. (laughs) Racism is a sin problem. A widely accepted but unbiblical concept is that people are born good and that evil is an acquired trait. That is not what the Bible teaches. That is not what the Bible teaches. And we are now talking about the doctrine of homardiology, sin and its origin in humankind. Let's just remind ourselves of a couple basic concepts. For example, in Psalm 51 verse 5, King David, talking about his own conception, talked about the fact that he was conceived in iniquity. It did not mean that the act of conception was a sinful act. It meant that when, when the male and female 
genetic code came together and he was conceived and he was an embryo, an unformed baby in the mother's womb, he, was, he already had a sin problem. We know Romans 3.23, the wages of uh, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What Paul is arguing in the first, really the first nine, eight chapters of Romans is that we have a systemic sin problem. We don't, we don't become sinners. We sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. That's what Paul's whole point is. And we sit in the condemnation chair of death. Because of a holy God who can't look at sin. Jeremiah said that our hearts are desperately wicked. The ESV uses the phrase sick. The King James, our hearts are wicked. And so let's just go right to the point. Everywhere we see racism, we see evidence of the sinful heart of man. Let me give you a few illustrations that clearly communicate. Have you ever heard of Atabenga? His story is told by Ken Ham in this book. I really recommend you get this book if you don't have it. Atabenga was a pygmy. He grew up in the Congo of Africa. He was four foot eleven. He weighed 104 pounds. He had his teeth filed really sharp, razor sharp. I got to go quickly here because of the time. Atabenga in 1904, was on display in St. Louis at the World Fair. He went out hunting elephants one day with, his, with the other men of his village in the Congo of Africa at that time, the Belgian Congo at that time, and he came back, and their village had been totally dis- obliterated. His, his wife, his children, everything was wiped out, and Belgian agents con- captured him, brought him to the United States, and he was put on display at the World Fair in St. Louis, United States of America, in 1904. After that, this picture was taken in the Brooklyn Zoo. He was placed in the ape cage at Brooklyn Zoo, and he was on display. It was an immensely popular feature of the zoo. They had to have police officers around it because it got so raucous, and as many as 40,000 people a day came to see Otto Benga. You Google it. It's an easy story to find. There's books written on him. A group of African-American pastors in Brooklyn came and and argued for his release, and he was released to them. They helped enable him to go back to his home. There he remarried. Shortly after he remarried, his wife uh, died of a snake bite. He was in a depression. He didn't know what to do, and actually facilitated by a Presbyterian minister of all people. He ends up coming back to the United States. The Presbyterian minister was manipulated by scientists, and they wanted to study him more. They brought him back. He ends up on display again, living a horrible life. Fast forward to 1916, with tears running down his cheeks in deep depression, he takes a pistol and he shoots himself in his heart. I'm telling you, racism is because of sin. Let's quickly pass through. You know many. The Nazi German camps. What's the next one? This is the, um, in Australia, this is the aboriginals of Australia. Do you know that the Smithsonian Institute gave instruction on how to shoot these guys, drain the blood and plug the bullet holes and ship them over so they could study them? They were believed to be a subhuman species. Look at these precious men. We have, let's fast forward to the United States. We don't have time to talk about the, the slave trading of the 18th and 19th century in our own history, American history. You talk about, this is Selma, this is the Bloody Sunday where they walked across the bridge and state troopers and National Guardsmen go up to unarmed black men in suits and beat their brains in with billy clubs because they hated them. Let's not forget the next picture. I believe that at some level, abortion is a racist issue. You are identifying a particular group of people that you hate enough to wipe off the face of the earth. Unborn babies. I couldn't help not throwing that in there. 
Maybe it's not directly racist. It does have, however, racist ramifications when you recognize the disproportionate number of abortions that are happening in the African-American community in the United States. It's, it's unbelievable. It's all because of sin. Okay, listen closely and we'll fill in the next two. So we are arguing that we have to have a biblical mindset on the origins of the human race. We have to have a biblical mindset about the sinfulness of a man's heart. Number three, you'll know this one. I can click this off very quickly. The intrinsic value of people. The intrinsic value of people as demonstrated by the heart and love of God and the mission and commands of Christ. For example, letter A, God loves all people everywhere. God loves all people everywhere. And you say, Pastor Man, what about the groups of people that God said he was going to wipe off the face of the earth? Well, you'll study in your Bible, you'll notice that God always pursued people and gave them a chance for repentance and that we're a pursued people to be wiped off the face of the earth, that the wages of sin is death. It had nothing to do with racism or identifying people groups because of their race. It had to do with their sinfulness because the wages of sin is always death. But the testimony of scripture is that God loves all people everywhere. Secondly, Christ died on behalf of all people everywhere. This was not a limited atonement. This is an atonement that was sufficient for the sins of the entire world. Thirdly, Christ's teaching to love one's neighbor includes all people everywhere. In Luke chapter 10, when you have the story of the Good Samaritan, what do you have? You have a guy who raises his hand and he says, you said I have to love my neighbor as myself. How in the world do I identify who my neighbor is? And Jesus tells a story about the Good Samaritan. And by the end of the story, it dawns on you. I know what it is. My neighbor is wherever I am, whoever I encounter, anywhere in the world, that's my neighbor. It includes all people everywhere. And so the command to love my neighbor as myself includes all people everywhere. Fourthly, the Great Commission includes all people everywhere. Go ye into how much of the world? All the world. The aboriginals of Australia? Absolutely. All the world. The Great Commission is for all people everywhere. Equally. Fifthly, and you should remind yourself of this verse, you know it, Revelation 7, 9, when we look forward to heaven, heaven will be populated by people from everywhere. Every tribe, every nation, every tongue will be standing before the throne and we will join together as the redeemed ones. It is a multi-racial, multi-cultural heaven that we're going to end up in. Read it. And so... You have to understand and have a biblical mindset that based upon the heart of God and the mission and the teaching of Christ, there is an intrinsic value in the mind of God for all people everywhere. Fourthly, and this is the most important point, and we don't have any time for it, listen closely, the power of the cross in reconciliation. The power of the cross in reconciliation. Ephesians chapter 2, don't even turn there, just listen to me. Look, if you have your notes, look at it. Paul, in this passage, is speaking specifically about Jews and Gentiles. He is talking about a racial divide, and I'm telling you, it is a racial divide of epic proportion. Jews hated Gentiles, and Gentiles hated Jews. And because of the blood of Christ in Ephesians 2.13, we are brought near, both parties are reconciled unto God in verse 13. Jews and Gentiles alike are reconciled unto God, and that reconciliation that takes place through the cross of Christ... 
brings us together so that the barriers of hostility are broken down. And if you still get the passage, the hostility is between man and God and man and man. And there are no barriers. And in fact, because of that, verse 19, we get to there. We are now identified as members of the household of God. I want to tell you the only real solution to racism is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. There is no other solution because of the sinfulness of man's heart. Let me give you three R's in response. Listen closely. How do you react? What do you do? Number one, I call on us to repent if there's an ounce of racism in us. And sometimes that's hard to identify. Repent. Secondly, second R, reprogram. Reprogram. Thirdly, reach out. Reach out. I I was mowing a lawn last night. I still do my son's lawn business. He's off to college. And there's some people I've been waving at for about two years that live right in the lawn next to the lawn. And they're an older couple. And they were out on their porch last night. And and when I got around to their edge of the yard, I shut my mower off and I walked across. And they kind of looked funny at me. And I said, hey, beautiful evening, isn't it? I just came over to introduce myself. Is that okay? Oh, yeah, come on over. Had a great talk. Found out they're Mary Pearl Weekly's cousins. And we're going to be at a picnic together today. Didn't know them from Adam. When I went back to the lawnmower after chatting with those people, I thought of a book that was written by a pastor a few years ago about racial reconciliation. And the title of the book was Just Walk Across the Aisle. I thought, now, I've been waving at those people for two years. I shut my mower off, and I walked over, and I had a 10-minute conversation with them, and now we're friends. And you know, that's almost exactly how it happens, no matter what the slanty eye is or the color of the skin. Just walk across the yard and say hi. Reach out. May it, may it be that the love of the body of Christ at Fellowship Bible Church is a testimony to the community that all are welcome here, regardless of their skin color, their geographical, regional, ethnic background, or the slant of their eyes. Let's pray, please. Stand up. And so, Father, we need your help with these things. We um, often can deceive ourselves even with the sinfulness of our own hearts, and sometimes dynamics and characteristics of our upbringing influence us. But, Father, may the love of Christ run deep and wide and rich here. May we always stand against sin. May we stand at Fellowship Bible Church against the sin of racism. Father, would you blend our church? Would you make sure that everybody in this community knows that they are welcome regardless of their ethnic origin? And would you help us to repent and to reprogram and to reach out? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.